I am Zach Carden. I am not Jonathan Youssef. Jonathan Youssef uh, asked me to... St- so all summer long, Jonathan's been asking me to kind of fill in during times, and I keep saying no. And then he said, hey, I've got three weeks in August. Can you do it? And I'm like, I, gotta, I have said no all summer. I've got to be able to fill in. So for the next three weeks, uh, like it or not, we're going to be together. <laughs> so... Um, if you showed up and you're like, where's Jonathan? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm about to pray. I've said this before. I'm about to pray. Um, it will be a short prayer, so if you want to move quickly to the exits, you're going to have to move fast. Okay? Um, we're going to be in Philemon for the next three weeks. It's a, a series called Transform, Challenged, and Compelled. Each one of those words is a different focus for each sermon going through the week, uh, going through the, the next three weeks. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in Philemon 1, 1 through 7. That's on page 1186 in your pew Bible, 1186 in your pew Bible. Um, we're, it's, this is a personal letter, letter to a man named Philemon, of course. Um, and he's addressing Philemon because Onesimus, Philemon's runaway slave, is being returned to Philemon. And in this letter, Paul points to the transformation he sees in the life of Philemon, but he challenges him in light of that transformation, and he compels him to change course on some things in his life. It's much how spiritually healthy people would address someone. They would start out with those things that they're doing well, and then they would challenge them in some areas, and then they would, they would urge them to change some things, to impress them on the need to change some things. So this week we're going to be looking at transformation and how Paul affirmed these areas of transformation in Philemon's life, knowing there's room for growth. And we invite the Holy Spirit to consider our lives, to affirm the areas where he has transformed us, but in realizing we're not there yet, to challenge us in areas where we need to grow. Philemon 1, 1 through 7. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Athia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church that is in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I've derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and just encountering your word with your spirit in our hearts, we are changed by it somehow. So, Father, in this time that we have this morning, we pray that you meet us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that he will reveal to us the areas where we have come so far but also challenge us in the areas where we still need to grow. Help us as we're listening to this sermon not to listen to it and say, hey, it would be great if so-and-so heard this. Help us to listen to this sermon, to listen to your word in a way that says, I need to hear this, and my heart needs to hear this. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. For years, New York City has had the reputation of being a very rude metropolis, has it not? When I was a teenager, I got the chance to go to New York City, and I experienced the rudeness that was New York City. In fact, so much so that I had no desire to go back. 
This little southern boy couldn't get away fast enough. But then when about a year and a half ago, my daughter got into an orchestra competition or orchestra um, that she was going to be featured in New York City, we we had to go back. And this was in the middle of masks and everything going on uh, post-2020. But I found the city, and most recently, as this past weekend, when we went up to see my son as he came into port uh, with the Coast Guard, I experienced a different city. It was a little softer. It was different. It wasn't as rude as I remembered it. Now, that may have been the fact that I'm a middle-aged man versus a teenager. But as we sat and talked with uh, one of Tennyson's childhood friends who she and her husband lived there during the summers, I began asking the question, you know, why, why is it softer? And we threw around a couple of thoughts. But at the end of the day, I think what we focused on is it had to be 2020. In fact, when we were there a year and a half ago, our tour guide very candidly said that that, that season with the, the, the deaths that came from COVID and the fact that everybody was in such close proximity, you were touched somehow by that. And he lost several, several friends. And I think that what happened was that trauma, that trauma really did something in the life of that city. The trauma of staggering losses had broken many and left something a little softer in its place. Trauma does that. Trauma transforms us, sometimes in a negative way. But sometimes trauma transforms us and we grow from it. Sometimes those changes are lasting and other times, well, when the crisis is over, we just go back to the way things were. Why do I bring that up? Because the early church experienced that sort of trauma, a holy trauma, which had an immediate and profound effect on them and their community. And the evidence is in Acts, 40, uh, Acts 4, 32 through 35. Let me read that for you. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and the great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Their willingness to share their blessings is, is koina, it was what was in common for them. And it, it, it came out of their, their spiritual fellowship called koinonia. And so their koinonia, that transformed sense of community amongst them, by the power of, of, of the Spirit, led them to an immediate and profound change in how they lived and how they viewed one another. What does this have to do with Philemon? Well, look at verse 6. It says, And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. That sharing of the faith is the word koinonia. And what he's what it really should be translated, translated as is the fellowship of faith. Uh, I'm going to come back to this, but we, we think of that phrase, sharing of your faith, as more of an evangelistic thing. What this is is a sharing of our resources, our hearts, uh, amongst one another. And that's what's going on in the heart of Philemon. 
He goes on to say that he's praying that that koinonia with Philemon may become effective. And that word effective is the same word that we get our word energy from. So basically envision a power tool that's not going to be effective unless it's plugged in. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, I pray that your koinonia, the fellowship that you have, may be plugged in and that you'll see it become effective. You'll see the power working because you are in union with Christ and his spirit is flowing through you. And Paul is attesting to the transformation of Philemon. But Philemon hasn't arrived. He must be plugged in to be continually transformed. So what can we glean from this for our own lives? Simply this. Our faith in Christ is transformative. It's not a mere assent to certain facts. Yes, that's part of it. But it comes with transformation wrought by the Holy Spirit. It changes how we interact with the world and with one another. It isn't transformation that saves us. It's it's salvation that transforms us. We're not meant to be the nasty, rude, selfish people that our flesh desires for us to be. Faith is meant to suffocate every bad thing that's within us and cultivate every good thing that's within us for the sake of Christ. And we know that's a struggle, right? It's a lifelong process. Not one of us in this room has arrived. And if you think you have, well, that is a primary sign that you have not arrived. (laughs) There are vast areas of our hearts in which effectiveness of our faith needs to be applied to transform those things within us. Some are simply personal struggles. Uh, The Holy Spirit is impressing upon us where our heart needs to embrace something or let go of something. And and others will see, like Philemon, there are general things that the culture embraces that, that are not ultimately consistent with what Christ would have for his people. There are a variety of places in our hearts and lives that Christ transforms, but here we see the hints of three that will become important as Paul makes his appeal in this letter to Philemon. So the first one we see is our faith in Christ transforms our sense of family. And the evidence of this is all throughout this letter. Look at verse 1. Paul says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. Timothy is addressed as our brother. Now, something that you need to know is that Paul likely has never met Philemon. He's not been to Colossae. He did not start the church in Colossae. That was started by a man named Epaphras, who is working with Paul at this point, and he's mentioned in this letter. And this personal letter likely came paper-clipped, not really, just go with it, (laughs) connected to, attached to, the letter to the Colossians. But even though Paul and Timothy have not met Philemon, he includes him in the our, in the our brother. And look at the rest of verse 1 and how Paul refers to Philemon. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. Beloved fellow The fruit of the Spirit is uniting these believers together in a spirit of koinonia, a fellowship that that transcends the minor fact that they didn't know each other personally. He's part of a fellowship in a family that's not based on blood or DNA, but based on faith in Christ, and so are we. In verse 2, you see Athia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. 
In verse 3, God is referenced to as our Father. And if he is our Father, we are his children, then that makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I look, I know you know all this. This is like Christianity 101, right? But you have to truly appreciate how radical it was for the time. And also, it's crucial for us to realize that, that, that we don't always appropriate this truth in our lives. Sometimes we see the people that we know are believers in Christ as the enemy. Or we treat them that way. We let family squabbles. We let squabbles between us get in the way. Paul puts a finer point on this when he says in verse 7, he refers to Philemon as my brother. He's very clear. He's making it clear that they have a family relationship and that there's fruit of that family relationship in Philemon's life. Philemon has become a source of brotherly love as he refreshes the hearts of the saints. Paul is pointing to the Spirit's work in him. But there's more that Philemon needs in the way of transformation of his life. He and we have not arrived. And all that is going to be exceedingly important because this brotherhood and sisterhood in Christ really matter. And it's going to particularly matter in the situation in which he's addressing Philemon in regards to Onesimus. Now, though we may experience difficulties with one another, what this means is that those in the church with us are not our opposition. You know, they're not our enemies. They're not our antagonists. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we have disagreements, we, have, we deal with family business. We don't come after one another as the world comes after one another. And no matter how much society and the world wants to polarize us, we are first and foremost brothers and sisters in Christ. That's our first call. Um, I, I, I think it's interesting that Acts doesn't leave us with a dreamy idealism of chapter 4 too long. Because if you read a little bit further in chapter 6, you realize that there's a disagreement that pops up between the Hellenistic widows and the Jewish widows on who's going to get the distribution. And that doesn't blow up to become a, a Roman or a Jewish council issue. It becomes an issue amongst the family of the church, and they deal with it in a family way. Note that this is a letter personally to Philemon about a very personal matter, but it's also addressed to who? Athia? Archippus and the church. You know, this personal matter is going to become a family matter. Paul intends it to be because there's an accountability in that. Sharing it with, the, with a larger church that Philemon needs in his life, that Onesimus needs in his life. You know, if you go back to 2020, if you talk to any pastor that went through 2020, ask them, hey, how was that? And they'll probably do this. And the reason why is because there were many good, Christ-loving people who came down on different sides during that moment in our history. And they disagreed vehemently with one another. And pastors all over the country, all over the world, were trying to figure out how do we hold everything together and understand that our disagreements with one another are family disagreements. And that we can make it through this because the Spirit of Christ is within us. And we can love one another. And we can die for one another. We can die to our own selfishness, our own wants, our own fears. You know, that whole thing was magnified even more for me in 2020 when there was a video released on YouTube 
where there was the singing of the song, The Blessing, a song that we're going to sing at the end of our service today. And what made this song unique, what made this video unique, is that this song, The Blessing, which is from number six, was being sung by people from around the world in their own native tongue. And when I stumbled upon it, I wept. I had to watch it several times because what I sensed was this is the sense of family that the church needs. Like the church is so much bigger than America. I know sometimes because we live here, we get hyper-focused on that. But the church is so much bigger than America. We have brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. And if you believe the numbers, there's two billion of us around the world. That's not a small number. Even if you say, well, there's some of those people who don't really truly believe the right stuff. Look, okay, half that, one billion, that's huge. And they are our fellow workers around the world. And when times get tough, they're our fellow soldiers. And it's good to know that we have brothers and sisters around the world who are praying for us as we're praying for them, and they're laboring in the same fields that we're laboring in. We're not alone. It's a beautiful thing. It's a foretaste of what worship's going to be like in the eternal kingdom. One of the best places to find this sense of family is on a small group level. And we had the announcement for Group Connect this morning. That's actually going to be on the 20th. And if you're not here on the 20th at 9 o'clock when it's happening, I won't take it personally. Um, But Group Connect is a great way to get connected with other people in the church. There's that small group sense of family. Some people have said of our small groups that the people in their small groups are even closer than their biological family. That's what it does. It knits us together. How can we look back and see that transformation of a sense of family in our own lives? And how does it challenge us in areas where we still need to grow? Well, as we keep reading, we see that our faith in Christ not only transforms our sense of family, but secondly, it transforms our sense of ownership. Take a look at verse 2. There's a very important phrase that brings to light who Philemon was and what his faith had prompted him to do. The phrase is, the church in your house. The church in Colossae was meeting at the home of Philemon. This means that that Philemon probably had a large home. He was probably a wealthy man. Um, He has servants, so it's definitely true he was a a wealthy man to be able to have a a house big enough for people to meet in and and to to have a, a... household household servants. This takes us back to verse 6, though. What he's doing here is he's sharing his faith. And as I said before, that's not an evangelical term. Philemon's not going out to the street corner and, and, and preaching. There's nothing against that. He's not saying that you shouldn't do that. But the sharing of a faith here is the overflow of the current of koinonia, koinonia that's going on in the life of Philemon and what, seeing what God has done for him, and he wants to give back. He wants to give everything because of what he's seen Christ do in his life and because he knows what Christ has done for him. What Paul is getting at here is that it's very clear that the Holy Spirit is active in the life of Philemon. He's refreshing the hearts of the saints. He's sharing his home. What the Lord has done in Philemon is similar to what he's done in the, in the, the church in Acts 4. And that current of koinonia has transformed that sense of ownership. Let's look again at Acts 4.32. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. 
Now, just a side note here. I don't believe that this passage justifies an economic system in the world. Now, let me, let me take a moment to clarify that. These words were not written to Rome. These words were not written to Israel as a political community. These words were written to the church. They were written about the church. They do not describe a secular economic system, but they do describe God's economy. And in God's economy, what happens is when we see how greatly we've been forgiven, we want to give everything. Giving everything doesn't mean that that, 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 that seals our salvation for us. We're not paying God back. It is the response of gratitude for all that God has done in our life. Now, don't get caught up in the goods that are being shared here. Instead, focus on a couple of things. First, the state of their hearts and souls. It says, now the full number of those who believed were, of, were one in heart and soul. There was a spiritual transformation of their hearts, one that caused them to be one in heart and soul. And that profound state then harkens back to their brotherhood and sisterhood in Christ. Second, look at what it does in the knitting of their hearts. It says, and no one said that any of his things belonged to him or was his own, but they had everything in common. That is what is at work in Philemon. That's what's going on inside him. Paul calls it your house. It's still Philemon's house. Philemon hasn't, hasn't taken that deed and written it over to the church. It still belongs to him. But in Philemon's mind, everything he has belongs to God. And because everything he has belongs to God, it belongs to his brother and sister in Christ. And if he sees that they're in need and the Lord prompts his heart, he's going to give if he's ready, he's ready and willing and able to do so. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, Paul says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, like we sing today. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Everything that we have belongs to God, and God is meant to be glorified with it. Whether that be your money, your talent, your time, your whole self. And though it remain in your possession, like Philemon's house was still his house, it 100% belongs to God. We are stewards of our lives, not owners. Uh, I remember a few years ago, I was introduced to the Heidelberg Catechism. I had never really read it before. I know I'm, I'm a Presbyterian and I never read the Heidelberg Catechism. Some, someone sue me over it or whatever. Um, but I came to the first answer to the first question. And the first question is this, what is your only comfort in life and death? It's a confession that has heart and you can tell it has heart by the way it starts. What is your only comfort in life and death? That's what people want to know, right? And the answer, which is rather long, begins this way. That I am not my own but belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. There's more to it, of course, but you could spend hours unpacking that first sentence. We live in a world that would bristle at that first sentence. I'm not my own. I don't belong to me. And if we're honest, sometimes we bristle at it too. Because that flesh is still in us. That sin nature is still in us. Christ has set his seal of ownership on us, and he owns everything, which means we're stewards, not owners of our lives. Now, when you drive your car, you drive it a little differently than you drive someone else's car, right? You might be a little harder on the brakes, a little harder on the turns. My wife would attest to that in my case. But when you borrow someone's car, 
when you borrow a friend's car, you don't just take it out for a spin and, and take it as fast as you can go. You're, you're cognizant of the fact that you don't own this. It belongs to someone else, and you're stewarding it for the moment. And you're a little easier on the brakes, and you take the turns a little slower because you realize the consequences of what happens if you wreck their car and how bad you will feel. How does that change the way we see ourselves when we realize that body and soul, we're not owners, we're stewards of our lives? How does that transform us? What does that mean for us? It might seem oppressive until we understand the character of Christ, and that's why the rest of the catechism answer is so important. It says this, He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has freed, set me free from the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. We can, can trust that we can be stewards and not owners because of what Christ has sacrificed for us what he's laid down for us. The people in Acts didn't give out of compulsion. They gave because they understood what Christ had done. That's why they were knit together in heart and soul. They believed deeply that Christ had saved them from their sins. And Philemon got this early on. His home, his time, his possessions were freely given to God. However, as generous as Philemon seemed to be with his possessions, and as much as he understood God's ownership he had a blind spot that Paul will challenge him on. Onesimus does not belong to Philemon. Even though he thinks he does, Paul will remind him that Onesimus belongs to Christ. He is owned by no man. We all have blind spots. And we need the constant ministry of the Holy Spirit to point those out in our life. We have not arrived, but he's constantly pointing to the fact that we can be transformed. So how might it change our life to see ourselves as stewards of our lives rather than owners? Stewards of the spiritual, natural, and financial gifts that God gives us instead of the owners of those things. Which brings us to our final point. Our faith in Christ transforms our sense of purpose. If we're the stewards rather than the owners of our lives, then naturally it follows that not only does our sense of ownership need to change, but our sense of purpose. You cannot truly meet Christ and not be changed. I'm going to say that again. You cannot truly meet Christ and not be changed. I can think of no better literary example of this than Le Miserable. I mean... Le Miserable as the musical factors profoundly in my own conversion because when I was in New York during those teenage, that teenage trip, I saw Le Miserable for the first time on the stage. And as an angry, bitter young man, the moment when Jean Valjean, if you're not familiar with the story, he's released from prison. He cannot find a place to go. And the only person that takes him in is the bishop. And the bishop prepares for him a meal. 
on this lovely silver set. And in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean's instincts, his fallen instincts get to him. And he steals the silver and he, and he runs off. And he's brought back by two officers. And he's told them the story that, that the, the bishop had given him the silver, which was a lie. At that point, the angry, bitter teenager in me thought this is what's going to happen. The church guy is going to rat him out. And when he didn't, and instead gave him the candlesticks that he, he missed, the silver candlesticks, I felt something in me break. I bit the inside of my cheek because <laughs> I was at all boys school, so I didn't want to cry. But then I watched that story as Valjean knew his life had to change. And the bishop said, you must use this silver to become an honest man. I've bought your soul for God. And you see, how Valjean sows redemption in the life of everyone he meets. That's not a literary story. That's our story. That's who we are. Look at this. Look at it. Paul was a persecutor, and now in verse 1, he calls himself a prisoner for Christ Jesus. He was the one putting everybody in prison. And now his sense of purpose is so radically changed that he's going to prison for Christ. He's gone from being the one doing the imprisoning to the one who's being imprisoned. Look at how Philemon is classified as the fellow worker. He's working for the kingdom. And Archippus is a fellow soldier. When they came to Christ, their lives were profoundly transformed. And we can see something of what's going on here in verses 5 and 7 in light of verse 2. It says in verse 5, Because I hear of your love and the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And that expresses itself according to verse 7 through the refreshing of the hearts of the saints. You know, Transformation does not mean that if you're an investment banker that you necessarily are being called to go to seminary. It can be as simple as the transformation in the life of Philemon in which he, he refreshed the hearts of the saints. He spent time listening to people, spending time with them, and applying the wisdom of Scripture to their life. But whatever the case in our lives, it may not change our profession, but it does transform our sense of purpose. We should wake up every morning asking the question, how can I sow redemption in the life of another? How can I bring that sense of Christ's grace to the world that is so broken? And like Philemon, even when, our, when that is our purpose, even when we're known as those who refresh the hearts of the saints, though, we can still miss areas of our life where we are not living out that purpose and need to be called to challenge. Let me close with this. 
I went to Macaulay School, it was a boys' school in Chattanooga. And as I, as I referenced, though I'd grown up going to church, I wouldn't describe myself as a believer at the time. Uh, the motto of Macaulay School was the first answer to the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I always felt like that. I rolled my eyes every time I saw that. I rolled my eyes because it wasn't my experience at that school, and it, I rolled my eyes because inherent in my lost heart was a sense of sacrilege that belongs to our flesh. And so I actively mocked that statement until God broke me. And then he put me back together again. And I look back on those years and I remember that hurt, angry, profane young man who met Christ, who began to unravel and is still unraveling within me the profaneness of my flesh and transforming me into one who can glorify God. He's rebuilding me, shaping me, challenging me, rebuking me, calling me back over and over again, continually transforming my sense of family ownership and purpose. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to see Paul now act on these truths to challenge Philemon and then call upon him to change. May the Holy Spirit give us ears to hear and hearts to believe that we too have areas where we need to change. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your word that transforms us. We thank you for um, your love for us. Father, we pray that we don't walk away from today uh, without understanding that there are areas where we need to be transformed, Lord. Father, help us to truly reflect on these things as believers in Christ. And may we be sensitive to listen to where you're affirming our growth and challenging us where we need to grow. In Jesus' name we pray.